You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 18th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. Well, up to a point. The Mueller report is released, give or take a few gallons of Sharpie ink. My guests Sebastian Borger and Florian Egley will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the reasons that Australian elections take climate change more seriously than most, Switzerland's enthusiasm for China's globe-straddling trade project, and President Emmanuel Macron's plans for calming France's rage by closing his old school. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle and welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Sebastian Borger, London correspondent for Der Tagesspiegel, who is in the studio here in London, and Florian Egli, vice president of Foraus, the Swiss think tank on foreign policy, who joins us from our bureau in Zurich. Welcome both. And we will start with today's release of a redacted version of the 400-page report by special counsel Robert Mueller into Russian interference in the 2016 US presidential election. And the unredacted stuff makes the imagination boggle at what lies beneath the columns of black ink. It might yet turn out that Donald Trump was more right than he knew when he reacted to Mueller's appointment with the words, according to page 78 of the report itself, oh my God, this is terrible. This is the end of my presidency. I'm fucked. I think it's the first time I've ever got to swear on Monocle 24, Sebastian. This is quite an exciting day, but it is... Congratulations. It is a direct quote by the President of the United States. Uh, To return to Trump's assessment of the situation, is he... Look, the, the problem with this is, of course, that um, the Democrats and and a lot of people in the press have for two years um, fired up our imagination uh, that Mueller would come up with, with a, a smoking gun. Mm-hmm. With uh, basically saying Trump is a puppet of Putin, and and now it turns out, as far as we know from the redacted version, that that the, the Russians did try to interfere, but um, but that um, it, it wasn't at least to everyone's knowledge. It wasn't. I mean, Trump wasn't directly influenced, and I think that just takes the um, takes it slightly out of it, doesn't it? I mean, there's there's it's it's bad enough, no doubt about it. And 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 Mr. Trump's um, fear um, was um, was. Gr- greatly justified. Of course, he tried to get Miller fired. Uh, that that does appear clear, among many other things. Uh, Florian, people are still trying to work their way through it, and doubtless there will be more revelations forthcoming. This is only something that has uh, been released within the last couple of hours. But as far as you're able to tell so far, have we learned anything that we didn't already know or couldn't have guessed? I don't think so, no. I mean... What my takeaway is so far is that apparently there is no proof of obstruction of justice. So that was the main point that the whole investigation circled around. But however, I think this whole, I'd like to call it a circus almost, shows something that is kind of beneath it. And that is that 
the lines between politics and justice or um, politics and the justice system seem to become more and more blurred. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say, you know, which part of the investigation is a real investigation and then what of this is communicated and when it turns to be political. And, and this is just sort of an extreme version of this in the US, but we see it in many different places in the world. And that's actually what worries me most, more than the actual content of the report. Just to follow that up quickly, Florian, you're quite right in which in that the report says so far as we can tell that there's no clear proof of obstruction of justice but there sure as heck isn't proof that there wasn't obstruction of justice or that nobody tried to obstruct justice what this report very much doesn't say is nothing to see here your chaps off the hook everybody move along sure do you think trump is potentially actually still in trouble over this i mean i think he's i mean when you look at how he behaves in his presidency, he is constantly in trouble. And he's constantly in trouble, like related to his personal interests, to his, um, that, that's financial interests, to his companies, related to Russia interfering in elections. So, I mean, I don't think he's going to get out of this um, before the presidency ends. But I also, um, at least how it looks now, don't think that this or anything that comes out of investigations or also future investigations will actually lead to a premature end of this presidency. So I, I think it's going to stick around and I think the problems will too. Uh, Sebastian, can, can we amuse ourselves for a couple of minutes by imagining how the Republican Party would be reacting if an investigation into a parallel universe Hillary Clinton White House would re, you know, was released? I mean, they, they would be demanding that Navy SEALs take the White House back. They would, they would um, point to a number of bits. I mean, uh, of course, I haven't read the whole uh, thing and, and there may still be more to come. But uh, Müller says um, Trump gave inadequate answers. Now, of course, he could have said he gave wrong answers or he lied to me. But inadequate answers, I think, from a, from, from a, a president of the United States is, is not a very good showing. He was unable to reach a judgment as to whether or not there was obstruction of justice. Let's be, let's be mm. careful about that. Uh, this is uh, this is a uh, uh, this is a let off second class. I mean, this is like, well, no, look, in, in the Scottish legal system, of course, we have guilty, not guilty, not proven, mm. different from the English system. It, this is not proven. This is, you know, okay, the, 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 the law of the land is that you get off unless, it's pr unless you're proven guilty, but this is not proven. Um, Florian, obviously the next few days, weeks, months or possibly however long Trump's presidency lasts are going to be consumed by argument over this. How do you see this panning out, though, in the very immediate future? There's there's some talk or I, I think it's now quite clear that Robert Mueller has been asked to testify to Congress. But is this just going to be another Trump scandal that blows up for a few days and then dies down once the next thing happens? Or do you think that he might struggle to get out from under this one. I mean, somehow it seems to me that kind of the hottest phase of this was over before the report was actually released. I don't know if that's just just my my impression from over here, but but I, I kind of I kind of struggle to see or to to imagine a scenario where this is actually becoming much worse for President Trump in the in the weeks or days in, or days to come. So I think I think it's it's gonna 
rather quiet down. Um, but that's not that's not to say that other issues will not pop up. Um, and I think that's going to happen quite quite constantly. And the the other thing on on the burden of proof. I mean, I agree um, that that's not a verdict of of um, there was no there was no involvement, not at all. But on the other hand, the burden of proof is clearly um, with the um, the with the, the the party that alleges something. So. I, I think, I mean, that that's how the legal system works. So for now, I don't see this um, as sort of escalating to another level. We're always judging this politically, aren't we? Mm. And the interesting thing, of course, is that it won't do him any harm with his base. I think that's that's the takeaway. Uh, if we if we look at the field of democratic candidates for the presidency next year, and we look at what Trump, uh, how Trump has survived so far, uh, and and we we see the the opinion poll figures, we have to we have to come away and say it 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 will take a lot more for his for, for his second term to to vanish. Okay, well let's move along now. There will obviously be more on the Mueller report in tonight's Monocle Daily at 2200, but we'll look now at Australia, which is currently beset by a federal election campaign ahead of the vote on May 18th. A distinguishing quirk of Australian elections in recent years is that climate change is a genuine issue, though it is an open question whether this is because my fellow country folk have an unusually rarefied environmental consciousness or because they lucky enough to live in a country where pretty much everything else works fine as it is so they can afford to spend time arguing about climate change. The Labour opposition are making more of a thing of it than the Liberal or Conservative government, but the Liberals are trying to turn this around by alleging that Labour have not done their sums. Um, Florian, is there is there something here, an example to be followed that my, my country is setting that more nations could perhaps take a look at, that climate change should become more of an election issue than it usually is in most places? I mean, we, we, we can't escape it, right? And Australia is in a sense an extreme example because it's disproportionately hit by climate change. I mean, if you look at the Great Barrier Reef that disappears, if you look at how droughts hit Australia, how wildfires hit Australia, it, it is in your face, right? It's not something theoretical, but is actually happening in Australia. And at the same time, Australia is also one of the heavy emitters. So, I mean, um, they're known for their mines, especially coal. Um, so so it's, it's one of the heavy emitters and at the same time, one of the countries that actually feels the consequences of climate change already and and this is only this is only going to increase over time and there are not that many examples of countries that are in this situation but even though i mean in switzerland for example it's become a huge topic it will be one of the main if not the main topic in in the um in the upcoming election in um in october so i think we see this trend as sort of climate change is becoming worse and worse it will necessarily sort of um move up on the political agenda and and become a hot topic um, in, in elections too. Sebastian, is it a big thing yet in German elections? Germany, of course, has had a very well-supported Green Party for, for many, many years. In that sense, it is. But but uh, Florian, of course, is entirely right that uh, Australia is the canary in the mine, isn't it? Um, both in terms of em- emissions and also in terms of feeling the, feeling the pain. Um, and so I think it, it'll be very important for people around the world to look at Australian politics and see how you can, um, how you how you have to shape the discussion of climate change for, for first of all to get people interested, and then secondly to to make people understand that there is a price to pay. How, how big is the price, and 
how long will we have to pay the price for? That's, of course, the problem with, with uh, democratic uh, electoral cycles in Australia, three years, mm. in, other, in other countries, four or five, that, that uh, people necessarily think in those pretty short-term periods, whereas uh, w- what we need to look at are 15, 20, 30 years. And, of course... I mean, they are they are arguing about cuts by 2030, so that's 11 years hence. Um, the, the, the Conservatives saying they want to cut emissions by 26 to 28 percent. Labour is saying 45 percent, and and that that seems to me uh, more in line with other industrial nations. But um, certainly a, a, f- a factor which is which is only going to increase in Germany as well. And of course, as you say, uh, the, the Greens are, are strong. Uh, it's always the question, uh, how far does it get? Because, for example, in Germany, we have we have a big debate at the moment that we've uh, uh, we've cut down on nuclear power fairly swiftly uh, after Fukushima in 2011 uh, the last uh, the last reactor is supposed to go offline 2022 whereas we are still talking about um, uh, leaving coal um, to 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 produce electricity until 2035 which is which is in terms of emissions of course entirely madness um, Florian, slightly self-indulgent question, but hopefully illustrative to any of my fellow citizens who are listening. Um, is, is an Australian election a topic that consumes the discourse of the, the cafes and salons of Zurich or, or perhaps not so much? Not not at all, I would say, but that's quite, me. That, that's quite both ways round, right? So I, <laughs> I, I struggle um, picturing somebody in a Sydney or Melbourne street cafe talking about elections in Bern. So, I mean, <laughs> this is this goes both ways. Um, but but yeah, and I, I, sh- I think it shows a broader trend. And, and what Sebastian said, I think, is interesting because, you know, we tend to think in political cycles and climate change used to be in the past a topic that did never materialize in, in political election cycles. So, you know, four years from now, you never had any consequences if you didn't tackle climate change. So it never hit you as a politician. And that, that starts to change. And so that, therefore, it starts to become more important. And, and, and in Switzerland, for example, it is at the moment the topic is tearing apart the Liberal Party. And, and that's because people are going to the streets, you know, like almost every week, but certainly every month. And we've seen the largest demonstrations in Zurich after the Iraq war on this topic. So there is, there is really pressure building up and pressure on specific parties. And these politicians, they feel the heat. So um, I think it is, it is actually changing. Uh, Sebastian, on, on that subject of, the, of the, the protests and demonstrations that Florian was referring to there, there have, of course, been similar things occurring in London this week. There's some suggestion that it may expand further tomorrow to uh, attempt to interfere with the operations of Heathrow on a Good Friday, which I'm, I'm not convinced will necessarily win many friends uh, to the cause. But, but is that kind of action, do you think, still effective? Or have politicians got, where, where environmental protest is concerned, have politicians got too used to that kind of street theatre? The problem, Andrew, is you, you put your finger on the problem. You don't win friends. If you, if you point out the problems with climate change and if you point out what people can do now and here and now, then you will inevitably come to to very awkward conversations which people don't like where you won't win friends i mean you 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 mention you you say it you say to people um who who fly to frankfurt or to munich or to hamburg to you say to them well why don't you take the train and they will always find some explanation why they don't but of course um if if we are serious about tackling it then we must 
uh, change the, the the way we uh, the, the emission we must bring emissions down and we only do that as a collective uh, the the protests the problem i think with the protests is that we we're not quite uh, seeing a clear cut program but I, i i can tell you what if if and when we see it it will be very tough and that's and, and people will will be much uh, less inclined to to join in than for example with nice peace movements 30 years ago where we were, could all agree that we are very much against nuclear weapons um this is this is a very tough issue i don't envy the politicians having to having to grapple with it and 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 having to make suggestions which are by necessity unpopular Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me Andrew Muller along with Sebastian Borger and Florian Egley. More after the break. What if? Could we? Should we? The urge to pick up sticks and start over hits us all at some point, especially when you spot a place that delivers in spades for work and play. There's a new class of creative folk who found a perfectly proportioned city in the med that delivers rich opportunities and a way of living that's covetable. Their choice is Palma de Mallorca. Once we get to the island, you can really focus on whatever you do because it's very what you save is a lot of time. Everything is very close. So life is quite relaxed here, like a bit slower than even compared to Madrid. So for us it's very inspiring to work in a place like Mallorca. Creative Mallorca playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me Andrew Muller still with me are Sebastian Borger here in London and Florian Egli in our bureau in Zurich. Now not that much further evidence of the scale of China's global ambition was required but the fact that there's a place for Switzerland in Beijing's Belt and Road Initiative is a useful illustration. Swiss President Yuli Mara will visit Beijing later this month and sign an accord backing the Belt and Road project with which China wants to further extend its trade routes to Europe and much beyond. Um Florian, what's in this for Switzerland? Why did Switzerland want to be a part of this? If I've got this right, it's the first country or first G7 country after Italy to sign on with this. Yes, it's certainly um one of the first countries after after the prominent visit of Xi Jinping in in Italy. I I think I mean, we need to we need to zoom out a bit to understand why why Switzerland is taking or is taking this first step here. I mean, the interestingly, the European Union has released its new strategic outlook on China this March, and it says that the relationship between the EU and China is a systemic rivalry. Now, that's an interesting term. It says China can both be a um strategic competitor and a strategic partner so there is really a lot of strategic thinking going into the the relationship with China and Switzerland is not part of this game at all right so Switzerland is not part of the European Union and Switzerland is a really really small economy that is not really relevant on a very strategic level for China so what Switzerland is essentially doing and and it's been doing that for a while now um with the Asian Infrastructure and Investment Bank it was a founding member it signed one of the first free trade um agreements of of western countries with china and switzerland is kind of trying to pick the economic cherries in this game without really you know thinking about the politics behind because for that scene switzerland is is too much of a lightweight player so i think um you know switzerland is really trying to find its economic niches here however it seems a bit unclear at least to what extent swiss 
companies can really benefit from this Belt and Road Initiative. And I think that's the that's the main thing um, to solve here. Uh, Florian, just to follow that up, as you correctly point out, Switzerland's economy is a small one, certainly when compared to that of the People's Republic of China. So I, I guess to look at the same question from the opposite direction, what's in this for China? Because uh, President Maurer is, is going to Switzerland to attend the, the Belt and Road Summit. So there will be lots of other national leaders involved with the Belt and Road Initiative there. But he'll be getting the full state visit treatment from China. So what is it about Switzerland that China prizes so highly here? Sure, but it's not about the economy. I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear um, what it is. It's it's Switzerland's soft power. It's kind of, you know, you want this, this sort of stamp on your organization that you can say, okay, you know, Switzerland participates, so therefore it must have some sort of credible setup. And, and China has quite famously, I mean, with the AIB and also with the Belt and Road Initiative now, these are kind of large institutions without any governance structure at least that is visible from the outside or without like a multilateral system that governs this according to sort of transparent rules so for for china i think it's extremely important to bring in these sort of credible soft power um, nations that might be economic lightweights but but give these mechanisms and institutions a credibility that goes you know into the western world uh, Sebastian, as a general rule, how careful should those Western countries be about lending that credibility to any project of China's, uh, a, a regime which is, well, one would hope in many respects, disagreeable to Western democracies? Extremely careful, extremely careful. And in, in that sense, uh, the Swiss government has taken an entirely wrong uh, step. Um, I mean... Florian is 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 very modest about the Swiss economy. I mean, it, it does for for a, for a comparatively small country. It does matter as an economy, but but you know the the the, the propaganda value for for China is immense. There's no doubt about it. And and you know compare it to um, to the the desperate attempts by the Brexiteers here in Britain uh, to get trade agreements with around the world. They got Fiji and and uh, Vanuatu and, and, and they. And Liechtenstein, I believe. Liechtenstein and Switzerland. And Swi Switzerland played the game, um, thereby uh, obviously annoying Brussels. There's no doubt about that. And and um, they they can now hide behind Italy, of course, because Italy was stupid enough to sign up to that uh, to that China initiative. Listen, Chinese foreign poli policy is only ever about expansion in the region, uh, imp imperi really imperialist foreign policy. The way they have bought up uh, the parts of Africa is absolutely abysmal, absolutely no no benefit for the population there, for, uh, benefit for some elites, no benefits for the for the population. Most of these projects will, I, I, can, I can swear to it, be built by Chinese uh, companies employing Chinese workers, flying them in from China. The, the, the local economies will have very little positive impact. All, all Switzerland is doing there is giving a credence to, a, to, a, uh, to someone who is, well, a systemic rival, yes. I, I would probably put it uh, harder than that. We are, we, are, we are quite rightly making fun of uh, America under Donald Trump, but what the Chinese are up to is much, much more malign. Uh, Florian, final quick thought on this subject. Is there any unease among or detectable in popular opinion in Switzerland about Switzerland involving itself with this? 
Not so much, and I think that's a problem. I think the political implications of these decisions are not actually considered in Switzerland currently, and that's the one thing I'd criticize a lot. And But also maybe coming back to what Sebastian said, I'd be a bit more careful in in you know what the aim of foreign policy is i mean i'd agree that completely china's foreign policy is now just about securing influence but i mean on the other hand what we've seen from the us and also what we've seen from european union if you look at trade agreements with many west african states and all that it's been quite similar you know so foreign policy is about you know increasing your influence getting preferential trade terms and 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 it's not so much about mutual interest at least um, as long as the power balance is really is really off so i think china is not the odd guy in this but it's might it might be a bit more extreme it might be more centralized and sort of more you know directed at a target because of its political system but essentially it's following a similar path i would argue compared to other powerful western nations Okay, well, finally tonight to France, generations of whose leaders, including its current president, have risen to the top via the École Nationale d'Administration, or ENA, the graduate school based in Paris and Strasbourg, founded in 1945 by Charles de Gaulle to groom France's ruling classes. The ENA's days may be numbered. According to reports from France, among the reforms President Emmanuel Macron was due to announce in the speech cancelled on Monday when Notre Dame Cathedral caught fire is the abolition of the ENA in an apparent concession to those who believe it an impenetrable fortress of self-sustaining privilege. Um, Florian, first of all, is this just Macron throwing a bone to the yellow vests? Probably, but I don't think if, I mean, I don't know if they're going to take the bone. I'd be surprised if they did. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, you know, if I told anybody here, I'm going to close down my um, my university or my high school, nobody nobody would actually would actually care. And it was good schools too. So, I mean, I think the, the, the fact that this is even a statement that is worth sort of making and, and, and might be this bone already shows that the system is kind of off. Um, Sebastian, uh, this was reported in the Financial Times, among other places. The FT report quoted an unnamed alumnus of the ENA who said, it's too easy to close it to please a few idiots who want to scratch your car. Um, is that an entirely incorrect assessment? Well, uh, to be honest, I mean, um, I have great sympathy with uh, with President Macron and, and the, uh, the, the very diffuse um, protests that he's been facing. But if if this is really a, a passage of his speech, then I think he's he has slightly lost his marbles because, well, come on, I mean seriously, by all means, open up these kind of institutions as Oxford and Cambridge have been trying to do here in Britain over the last ten fifteen years. Uh, uh, try to open them up to a wider range of the population. In Britain, of course, it's the old uh, chestnut of private versus uh, privately versus publicly educated mm. uh, uh, students uh, where where a, a, a really ridiculous amount of of uh, leading figures in all sorts of pro- professions come from from private uh, education uh, therefore from wealthy backgrounds by all means, try and, and change that. And I, I would have thought a, a country like France would be able to find their brightest students uh, to, to, to come to, to the ENA. But, but to close it down seems, seems entirely um, 
counterproductive because in the end the, the country will have to be governed by by clever people who who have got excellent education i mean we've got in germany we've got the the initiative quite the opposite that that certain universities are under the so-called elite initiative are being groomed to 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 uh, to, to be a little a little better than the others. The others should be good as well, but a little bit. I, I can't. I can't see for the life of me the sense in in this. Uh, Florian, is it weird for that reason? Would it make more sense um, for Macron to say that he was going to announce plans to open that and other elite academies up rather than just closing them down? Sure. I mean, the key to all of this is social mobility, right? What are your chances if you grew up in a non-academic family to actually become one of these academics and, and be one of these, you know, people governing corporates or, 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 or large government entities? Um, and I mean, in France, um, I just read the statistics before. So young people that are born in higher class or upper class families are five times more likely um, to graduate from a grande école than working class people. And I think you need to get this number down and you don't necessarily get it down by closing down ENA. But I mean, what it also showed, I mean, was, I was reminded of this funny incident where the, the Kremlin press secretary in Moscow um, um, was interviewed and, and asked, you know, there was this, this statistic that one third of the Russians can't afford two, or two pairs of shoes. And he simply says, oh, I, I struggle to believe this. I don't think these data are right. And it kind of shows you the extreme version of this, how elites get out of touch with what actually happens in, in the countries, because it's just such a system that reproduces itself over and over that these people just live in their bubbles. And I think that's what we have to, that's what we have to attack. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Florian Egli and Sebastian Borger, thank you both very much for joining us. Today's edition of Midori House was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Julia Webster, and our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900, it's The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200, including much more on The Muller Report, obviously. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 